Okay, let's pray and we'll get started. Don't forget there's handouts back there for tonight. You're going to need them at your tables. Father, thank you again for this wonderful book. Challenging, complex, difficult to understand in places, poetic, frightening, confrontational, encouraging, all the things that go with this, with this book. Thank you for deciding to chronicle for us your love for us and your... Um, your involvement into our culture and into our lives and into your creation. Thank you for that. Help us tonight to even make more sense of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, what questions do you have at this point? We've gone through two. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Next week, no class. Next week, no class. If you remember next Wednesday, when you're thinking about if we have class, I'll, I will have surgery, so pray for me. And so next Wednesday night, I'm likely to just be sleeping somewhere. Uh, Nancy will know where. It could be on a street corner. Who knows where it's going to be, but I'm going to be sleeping it off. Nancy will help me with that. So what questions do you have at this point in the class? Well, what I taught, we're actually going to go over again, because you just need to hear it lots of times for it to really sink in. But what we did do is very similar to what we're going to do tonight. We took some passages and gave you a chance to play with it. And um, the handouts that I gave last week were from resources. I brought some more resources here just to give you a clue of the types of things that are now out there. Uh, Ancient Israel, it's life and institutions. If you are bored at nighttime and can't go to sleep well, it's actually a very fascinating book. Uh, this is a commentary on Deuteronomy. One of your handouts comes from this because I want you to see how good commentaries work. This is uh, the Old Testament version of the Bible background commentary. So just about every verse in the Old Testament has a paragraph on the background issues related to that. Um, then this is a dictionary, and there's a whole, there's like 10 in this set. This is just one of them. So you can see a dictionary of, this is related to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. So there's just dictionary articles by scholars that you can look up all kinds of stuff. So I'm just giving, you, giving away all my secrets. Uh, if you want to look at them, I'll put them here, and sometime you can come glance through them. And there's just, there are so many resources. If you look at 20 years ago, we just had fraction of the resources we have today. And uh, that's because of archaeology, paleontology, anthropology, especially cultural anthropology. Um, it's being done around the world. And we're making so much more sense out of things than ever before. And it's wonderful. So we're going to go over it tonight. What other questions do you have thus far? Did you learn anything from the exercises last week? Was it helpful? A waste of time? Jesse didn't like it, but... Was it compelling? <laughs> For those of you that weren't here, we had a discussion on compelling. But Jesse's young. She'll get there. Jesse's already bought all these books and started reading them, haven't you, Jesse? Oh, totally. <laughs> By the way, the goal in this class is not to turn you into a scholar. I know that uh, uh, probably almost all of you in here, and I'll just say all of you in here don't love to do what I love to do, which is to read these things. 50% of my time, I probably spend five, 
to 10 hours a week reading and backgrounds and I have for probably coming up on 10 years now because it's so important in biblical studies. And so what I'm trying to do is to give you a sense of, of what does good Bible study look like so that you can ask the right questions. If you ask the right questions, that's, in my mind, that's 90% of the battle if you ask the right questions in Bible study. And um, we haven't done a very good job of getting you to ask the right questions. Not necessarily reframing it, maybe. I encourage people to, um, I encourage people to, as much as you're able, read the Bible every day. Have a time where you just read it. You don't study it. You don't try to figure it out. You just read it. Okay? Because there's going to be a whole bunch of it. It's a whole bunch of it. I don't, I get in the middle of it. And I'm going, what on earth are they talking about here? And so when you just read through that. Okay? And uh, what happens when you, when you read the entire Bible especially if you repeat it and you read it over and over and over again, you begin to get a whole different sense of God's mission. We're going to actually spend quite a bit of time on God's mission tonight. Um, because what we tend to do is we, we tend to drive you to the point that you lose track of the forest for the trees because you try to we get you to focus on, and that's a real popular thing to do. The Bible studies that you buy off the shelf are focused on a paragraph or a chapter. And uh, I, think, I think the best thing that Christians could do is just read it. Just read it straight through. Then if you want to do Bible study, uh, learn to ask the right questions, even if you don't have the resources. For instance, if you ask the question, every time you pick up the Bible, if you ask the question, what was broken that God is trying to redeem? You may not get to the answer, but it's causing you to move back in time 2,000 years by asking the question rather than stay current. Does that make sense? Just ask the question. So that's what we did last week. And you guys got very close to the answers. You really did. We're going to do practice some more um, tonight. Just when you pick up the Bible, if you decide to study it, to actually, and I would encourage you to study it, just recognize that it's more work than reading it. Reading it gives you the overall perspective of what God's doing. Studying begins to give you the perspective of what God is doing at any point in time. Okay? So you look at, um, you look at James, probably written around 45 to 47 A.D. Galatians, probably 44 A.D. is my take on it. But then you get to 2 Timothy and you're talking 62, 63 A.D. Um, well, it's 20 years there, 15 to 20 years in between those books. And so what happened in those? They don't all say the same thing. If you lay the books out and put them side by side, they, they, don't, they don't say the same thing and they're not trying to. So I would encourage you, if you're new to this, just start reading it, first of all. And when you don't understand it, just get through it. Try not to daydream. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to study, then... 
pick up something just like a you know a background commentary just to look look and see what was going on behind the scenes if you can but ask the question ask the redemptive questions ask the cultural questions what was going on at that time honestly a lot of the stuff you could google now and get good information there's incredibly fantastically good websites out there that you can rely on where people are doing it so and if you use a canned Bible study off the shelf, that's okay. Still ask the questions. Okay? Netbible.com? Interesting. It's not Bible.org that has the net Bible. Okay, I'll look it up. I'm not familiar with that one. Yeah. I do. What? No, no, the online. I think it's Bible.org. I'd have to look, but... Yeah, they, they publish articles from um, reputable scholars all the time. Um, it's really good stuff. I would encourage anybody who's not already doing this research. It's always so much more than <laughs> Basic rule of life. <clears throat> There's always somebody smarter than you and always somebody more stupid. Unless you're the last guy in line. <laughs> Would you be comfortable publishing this as really a comprehensive website? Yeah, I'd have to. I'd have to look because I don't use the websites a lot. I don't need to. I got them all in my office. <laughs> you know. I use the I use the websites for uh, technical articles, which are not ones that you would probably go to. Um, so I have to think about it. <clears throat> My students use them all the time because I'm I'm constantly seeing them in papers. So it's I'll I'll try to. Uh, yeah, many of them. <laughs> nah, we have we have bright students. We have bright students who are quite lazy. So you know you want to go into a doctoral program, but you don't want to really do the work it's going to take. So doctoral students are my favorite. They're really fun because uh, the, the, the undergraduates, they're fun because they simply don't know. The doctoral students are like, hey, I've been a pastor for 20 years. You know, we're, we're kind of peers. And it's like, okay, sweet. How do you answer this question? And stump them right off the bat. One of the things I love to do with doctoral students is put up, here's 13 places where the word rape occurs in the Bible. What do you get from it? And it's really interesting to watch the class it's the very first thing I do because you gotta, you got to convince them very quickly that, no, you're not a peer, <laughs> and um, not at that level anyway. So one of the things that happens is the, I watch the women in the class, and they start, you can see the pressure building <laughs> as they're getting, and the steam starting to escape because the Bible never says don't rape. It doesn't. In fact, uh, we're going to look at some of that tonight because in Numbers 31, Moses says, 
to the army <clears throat> when they came back after the Balaam incident. Um, he's really angry because he said kill everybody and they didn't do it. So he's really angry with them. He says, all right, tell you what, tell you what, you, uh, tell you what we're going to do. Um, kill all the old people, but take for yourselves two or three women. They're yours. You do what you want with them. Um, we conveniently skip over that when we preach, by the way. Um, and so with doctoral students, I don't try to help them figure it out. They have to figure it out on their own if they want to complete the program. And so it's really interesting watching them go through that, those tough, tough things. And so if you, start, if you just start reading the Bible, the passages that we love to overlook will float to the surface. By the time I got to my seminary education, I was probably on my eighth or tenth reading of the Bible, so I came to seminary with a whole list of, how come nobody talks about these passages here? And uh, those are some of those we're going to jump into tonight. Other questions? Yeah, check it out. We are really working. We have a budget. We have a goal to really keep it current. That's important to me. And it is to Ruth and to Jude. And so we have money set aside to keep our library current. And uh, you go through it regularly and call out old stuff that's, that's no longer relevant. And um, I'm always seeing her go through that at her desk. And so I'm always recommending things to add to it to keep it current. Okay, let's talk about the third leg. Okay, remember the three legs? The first leg was historical grammatical. I'm spending very little time on that because that's what you're most comfortable with. That's when you open it up and you look at the paragraph and you talk about the basic grammar and the words that are used, and then you look around it in the context to try to make sense of it. Most canned Bible studies, and that's not a negative term, by the way. I mean, the ones you buy off the shelf, focus in that area, that first leg. The second leg has to do with cultural analysis, looking at the background, the moment you can capture any sense of the background, um, then you're developing a, uh, a, a way of contrasting and comparing what's being done. And the reason why that's important, just by way of summary, is because we believe in a redemptive God. And so whenever God speaks or acts, he's redeeming something. He's fixing something that's broken. So if you can figure out what that is or even a, a glimpse of it, then you, Scripture comes alive in a whole new way that you haven't seen before. So that's why last week we spent more time on the cultural, just the examples, to try it. So tonight I want to give you a more full discussion of what it means to look at missional analysis or the mission of God to make sense of it and why is it important. The, um, the mission of God explains God's overall plan and why He acted the way He did when he did. That's important. Why did God give the creation account to Moses in 500 B.C.? Why not to Abraham 500 years earlier or David 500 years later? Why that point in time? Why does he choose not to um, address rape by saying don't do it in the Old Testament? Uh, why does he take a different route? Why does he um, allow and command 
genocide of certain villages. What's behind that? Okay, and so slavery. The Bible never says don't have slavery. Those words, we'd like to see it. Turn to chapter 32, you know, don't have slavery, but it doesn't say that. Why is that? And so if you understand the way God moves throughout history, then uh, some very fantastic things begin to float to the surface when it comes to Bible study. So when you look at a missional, I use the word redemptive, but that's a little confusing because we are doing redemptive work in cultural analysis too. So cultural analysis is looking at the background. Missional analysis is looking at the mission of God spread out over Genesis to Revelation or beginning to end. Eternity to eternity, what God is doing. Um, it answers the question of why some things are allowed at certain points and not at other points. So with my freshmen, 18-year-olds, what I do, walk into class. I may have shared this with you. Um, <clears throat> the way I start the class is the moment I say, hey, I'm Dr. Howard, open your syllabus, they're all asleep. Instead, what I do is I get all my stuff uh, ready and waiting for the kind of the bell to ring, metaphorically. And, um, but what I'm really doing is scanning the group to find out who the troublemakers are because they stand out pretty quickly. And you'll learn as a teacher who the troublemakers are. I won't tell you who they are in this class. Um, um, well, yeah, I will. Jesse's one of them. No, just, just kidding, Jesse, just kidding. So then I flip on a switch, you know, so you can see um, on the overhead. Our overhead, we're really outdated now. So they can see my computer screen up there. And it says, uh, God says to Saul, kill all the men, women, and children, and animals. First Samuel 15. I just put it up there, that one verse, and say we're no different than uh, radical fundamentalist Islam. And some would argue all of Islam because the Quran clearly teaches the killing of infidels, non-converts. So I'd say that. So we're no different. We believe in genocide too. And they begin to get real uncomfortable because they don't have the, the foundation to say, uh-uh, that's not true. It's really, it's really trickery. That's what it is. It's really fun to because it gets their attention right off the bat. In fact, I bet most of you would have trouble answering that question. Well, I bet, I'm guessing. What do you do with those genocide texts? Because they're clearly kill all the Amalekites. All of them. Every one. Don't leave anything. Slaughter them. Yikes. Is that the God that we know? Why? Missional analysis begins to answer that question because it looks at the long view of what's happening in history. Um, it also answers the question of where God is leading the redeemed in their expression of ethics. Remember, ethics is an expression in any particular cultural setting of right and wrong. So the, the ethics can change over time. Okay, Right and wrong doesn't change, but the way we live it out and express it in our culture does change. There are times when, if we're not careful... We create a fence with the gospel. We might be on the verge of that with women, for instance. Um, here's a chair there and one up here, or you can grab one if you want. Don't stand the whole night. But it'll keep you awake, unlike Jesse, who falls asleep. <laughs> See what happened? You started last week, Jesse. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> so it's um, uh, ethics begins to grow and yes, it does sometimes change as you move through history. What was acceptable even 20 years ago is not acceptable today. Now, that doesn't mean it was right, nor does it mean our ethics today are right. Okay? 
there will come a time when we're going to be changing our ethics. Every generation thinks they finally got it figured out. Guess what? It's not true. It's just not true. So I get criticized all the time with this type of stuff. You don't need to study the Bible that hard. We've got it all figured out. You know, I know what they did in the, in the Middle Ages, but we're not there anymore. It's pretty, it's pretty arrogant to say we have got it figured out when uh, some of the brightest scholars in the history of the world have been working on this for 2,000 years. And the church keeps growing in its understanding of theology and what God is doing, understanding of the Bible. It is not a fixed um, goal. It will one day be, probably, but not in our lifetime. And so we find, through archaeology, we find one thing that may change the whole meaning of a word, and we're, and we're all going, oh, wow, oh, all of a sudden it makes sense. I don't know what to do with Quirinius as governor in the story of Jesus, you know, the birth of Jesus in Luke 2, when he called for the census, because Quirinius wasn't alive at that time. <laughs> so we don't know what to do with it. I have no idea what to do with it. No record of a census being taken then. And yet the Bible says one was taken. So do I worry about it? Not, on, not at all. Somebody down long, probably long after I'm dead, will figure it out. Uh, I, I don't feel the need to have everything figured out in the Bible. I'm very comfortable with ambiguity. I'm very comfortable with conflict, tension, confusion, all of that stuff, because there's a lot of it in there. There just is. And so you have to become comfortable with the fact that you're not going to figure it all out. You just need to figure out enough to, to know what to do in some accounting, really, how to live it out. So some examples, well, let me just draw a model up here, and then we can look at examples. I'm not going to give you the examples ahead of time. We'll do it this way. Some of you have seen this model, and I'll try to draw it a couple different ways. Okay, this is, uh, I think you called the check mark. Was that you? Maybe it wasn't you. Alex? Maybe? I don't know. All right, here you have the garden. And then you have the fall, and you have a big mess of sin created here. We call that total depravity. What, that's a technical term. What total depravity means, very simple, is every part of your being is, is destructively influenced. There's not a single part of you that hasn't been destructively influenced by the fall. So what you think is normal, guess what? It probably isn't. It's normal to you. And so all of us, in fact, that's the whole, that's one of the core things of the study of psychology is we all think this is normal, okay? So how do you know, for example, that your, uh, the way you treated your kids was child abuse or not? I guarantee you, many of us in this room that are older, if we did today with what we do with our kids, if they did today, we'd be charged on the child abuse. That's changed in 20 years, 30 years, okay? But it seemed right to us didn't it? Seemed normal. In fact, those of us that are older, I've had several conversations where we've been going back to our kids going, oh, I'm so sorry. You know, My oldest son came to me. He's 13 years older than my youngest son. I said, Dad, you're raising, I know, the fourth kid. You're raising him a lot different than you did me. And I go, yeah, you're right. Sorry about that. <laughs> we've had that conversation, and I know some of you have. Um, but it was right at the time. In fact, that's what the books recommended. So what seemed normal to us, we now say wasn't normal. Is it okay to beat your kids black and blue with a rod? That's what Proverbs says. Is it okay to, to execute your kids when they disobey? That's what the law says. See what I mean? So 
because we feel something is normal doesn't mean it should be. It doesn't mean that it's God's ultimate practice because he's leading us someplace. So total depravity says every aspect of you as a person has been destructively influenced. You can't get away from it. Now, depending on your religious background, okay, uh, let me draw the next part and then I'll finish that statement. As the Bible unfolds, it's not linear, but I'm going to draw it that way. God begins the process of taking us out of this mess and redeeming what's broken one step at a time as the Bible unfolds. Depending on your theological background, your religious background, um, I don't know your traditions, all of them, some of the religions feel that we are trying to get back to the garden. I do not. I think the garden was actually supposed to be the starting point. We're supposed to do that, and we didn't. So we're not going back to the garden. We're going to something far better than that. We're moving in a different direction. The key here is that, from the standpoint of biblical studies, is that as the Bible unfolds, we're moving in a certain direction. Okay? So if you are, God gives a command or an explanation or steps in with an action or something, if you're on this side of it, it feels protective to you. If you're part of the redeemed, it feels refreshing. God is doing something to help you, to fix something that's broken. If you're here, looking back, it feels archaic, very difficult to understand. So where are we? We're way up here. So we look at these genocide, we look at these sexual ethics, texts on sexual ethics, genocide, all of that. It doesn't make any sense to us at all because we're looking backwards. And, w- and really what we have is we have ethics that have come way down here with the, with the whole Bible coming to us, and we're trying to, we're trying to take these ethics and put them back here. And it doesn't make sense to us. You follow that? just doesn't make sense. The best way to understand it is to go back here, dump your ethics. Well, don't dump them. That makes it sound like you're going to do whatever you want. <clears throat> just set your ethics aside for a moment. Go back here and say, what were the ethics here at this point in time? Then you can figure out what God is doing and as he moves. You with me so far? Okay. We're going to get into some examples and practice this tonight and ask these questions. Okay? And we're going to play with it a little bit. And I say play because there's no, it's, not a, it's not a fixed area of study. Um, in every passage we look at, there's going to be controversy in the church on what to do with these passages. I'll just give you my thoughts on it. But you get the idea that we're moving along. We're heading to the eternal state. Okay? That's what we're heading to. The eternal state where we finally... Um, we finally have the new earth to live on. We have gone through glory and whatever is in the middle of that. Most of the studies of the future, by the way, focus on what I think of as the intermediate period, uh, which is crazy because that's just a little tiny bit. The Bible gives a whole lot about the present and a whole lot about the future and just a little bit in the middle, but that's where the argument comes from. No, I do not hold to the Left Behind series. I think it's hogwash. Just put it out there, Okay. I know some of you love it. Not trying to step on your toes. It might be your theology. I don't buy it for a second. Okay? I think there's other better ways to look at it. So I'm going to skip right over this little section to get to the eternal state, which everybody loves to fight over. 
and say, we're trying to get to the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation, the renewed creation for what we were made for. We were made for earthly flourishing. We were made to flourish on the earth. The Bible doesn't say you die and go to heaven. That's a theological construct. The Bible says that uh, you die and you go through some form of glorification and you come right back to earth. What did Jesus say? Blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. So the New Jerusalem is a real city on the new earth, which is a renewed creation. And it's going to be like this, but a lot more beautiful. This is what we're made for. This is where we're going to end up. So let's don't get caught up in this little tiny section. Is there a rapture, millennial kingdom? Is there not one? Are you left behind? Forget all that. If you're a believer, you're going to be there. That's what's important. Someday we'll do a study on this and take that apart and look at it, but not today. The key is that the Bible is addressing a period of time, but it stops 2,000 years ago. It doesn't continue on. So the Bible doesn't address our modern-day issues. It just doesn't. So what do you do when the Bible doesn't address the issues? What do you do with the Internet? You know, oh my gosh, and all that goes with it. So we're going to look at some of that. Now, <clears throat> here's the interesting thing about it. This is where the whole argument of absolute truth and relative truth, you may have, for some of you that are older, remember uh, 30 years ago, 35 years ago, when the, when the whole big blow up over situational ethics, remember that? In schools, public schools, and the church fought that tooth and nail and said, that's absolutely crazy, that's non-Christian, da 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 We don't believe in situational ethics, it's either right or wrong, right? It's all, it's all absolute, truth is all absolute. I mean, I grew up in the middle of all that and uh, fought that argument for a long time. And finally one day I said, wait a minute, that's pretty stupid. Ethics is situational. <laughs> so, zip. And we went back to the Bible and said, we've got to rethink that. So that raises this, it raises a very big question in ethics. What is situational and what is absolute? So postmodern philosophy uh, made a big dent in this area of Christianity, and they went way too extreme. So I don't believe in what's called deconstructionism, for instance, where we deconstruct everything so that there's no value left. There's nothing to believe. Truth is whatever you make it. Now, I don't buy that, you know. Um, if I drop an apple, it's going to hit you on the head, okay? Uh, there is truth that is worth paying attention to. How do we distinguish it? So here's how I divide between absolute truth and what we used to call relative truth. I no longer call it that. All truth is absolute, but absolute truth and relative ethics. That's how I distinguish it, okay? Here's what happens. As God reveals himself... Everything about God is absolute. It is unchanging. It's emerging over time, but it's unchanging. Back here, we didn't know about the Trinity. Down here, we do. Did the Trinity exist down here, back here? Of course it did. So, Bible's pretty clear that God is unchanging in his character. So what we know about God and the character of God is unchanging. So I draw that just as a horizontal line. There's no change to it. It's just a theology that is emerging over time. So as God speaks, he begins to introduce himself to cre his creation a little bit at a time. It's always true. We just don't know it. So by the time we get to the New Testament, we're talking about the role of the Spirit and Jesus, and we're trying to figure out who this is, and we get in the middle of the New Testament. Now we're developing the Trinity, the ideas of the Trinity. 
Well, those have always been true. God just didn't decide to reveal that to us until later. But it's always true. Does that make sense? It's an emerging theology that is not changing in its content. It's absolutely true all the time. Got that? That's important. Anybody not get it? Okay. That's you in five minutes. Okay. Everything else about creation is changing. Okay? Everything. So you can take, you know how God, when he works in your life, as he introduces himself to you, your own personal ethics begin to change, don't they? You probably love people better now than you did five years ago. If you've been a believer 35 years, you probably love people better now than 35 years ago. You're probably more generous now than you were 35 years ago or however long you've been a Christian, right? You're probably more compassionate as you, than you were. So in your own personal lives, we see the model that's true of the Bible. As God introduces himself to you and he begins to mature you, your personal sense of ethics grow and develop and change. Well, that's true of the Bible in the world as well. As God introduces himself, we have a whole series of areas of ethics that are evolving and changing and developing. In fact, you can pick any area of social justice, justice that's important to you and we'll see development and change. So back here, for instance, slaves are commanded. Up here in Ephesians 5, slaves obey your masters. Masters treat your slaves fairly. Uh, if you do that, then the effects of the fall are negated. It doesn't matter if you have slavery. It no longer has any power. Back here, okay, women are property. By the time you get to Jesus, he allows um, Mary to sit at his feet. Paul begins to introduce language that exalts women. You see, and all the way through, you can track. If you look at every verse on one, women and, and lay it out, you can see that God is in the business of redeeming a broken patriarchal culture where women are steadily exalted more and more and given honor and responsibility. And uh, we find out, guess what? They're just about as equal as men in every way you can measure. Right? Does that make sense when I draw this? So as you move through the Old Testament, every area of social justice or ethics that is important to whatever, we could trace it out. We could look at it and we would see change and development because God is in the business of redeeming his culture, his creation. Okay, thoughts, questions on this? You got to get the basic model before we jump into passages. Start out what way? Why didn't, why, didn't, why didn't God do it all right here? Because he's a gracious God. You couldn't handle it. I mean, I, I use the example. <clears throat> Imagine what happened on the first day. You met Jesus at 11 o'clock. Your faith became real at that point in time. At 11.05, he sits down and he says, Great, Mike, here's the list of 48,000 things you have to change today. You couldn't do it. It'd kill you. God is very gracious slow to anger, bounding loving kindness. The days is a thousand years. In all the passages talk about God's patience. We as a people, we resist God. Even as Christians, Christians, we resist God. Look how long it's taken. I use the example in our own country of the uh, Civil Rights Act, 1964. Right? We've not got it figured out. We just don't. Okay, 
shouldn't we, maybe I just shouldn't judge. Matthew 7, what did Jesus say? Do not judge. That's a fundamental principle of Christianity. We all do. If we're not careful, what we end up with is everything goes. Ultimately, everything flies. Okay, the do not judge doesn't mean we don't have opinions on what God is doing and what is redemptive and what is not redemptive. When you look at sexual ethics, uh, we never go backward. We could actually trace out the various sexual ethics questions on here, okay, and we will see development. There is development with the same sex. For instance, back here, uh, and this is true with all these, there's a, there's, a double, there's a double transition occurring. One is what we think about it, and the other one is how we respond to it. Back here, if you have a gay person, you kill them. It's pretty simple. The laws are very short. They're one sentence long. A man sleeps with an animal, you kill him. A man sleeps with another man, kill him. A woman sleeps with a woman, kill him. Okay? Point blank. Um, it's not that that gets overturned in the New Testament. It's the opposite. As you move into the New Testament, the, the veil, if you will, metaphorically is parted, and we're given more and more information about same-sex questions and sexual ethics. It grows and develops, and we gain more information on why God is opposed to it. And that doesn't change. It becomes stronger. But what does change is the way we relate to it and the whole judgment piece. We still love them. Right. Okay? Why is it we judge uh, people that's, that have a different sexual orientation with us, but we're not judging, walking around judging people that are greedy? Right? People that are getting angry. Why, why are we not judging them? We like to judge what is the current flavor. Uh, I'll tell you what saddens me is we no, nobody's, judging, uh, nobody's judging divorce. Divorce is far more damaging to the church than same sex the, theologically. We all do that. I don't, know what, I don't know what the sin you struggle with the most is, but I guarantee you're still living in it. Uh-huh. Right, but, but, get the, but get the basic point that whatever sin you struggle with, you're still living in it. Redemption doesn't mean you stop. That's not what it means. Okay? It means that it's very gradual to change, and sometimes you may not change. So if you struggle with anger, you still get angry. <clears throat> Maybe you don't get angry as frequently as you used to. Maybe you used to get angry when you were 20 every three minutes, and now maybe it's every two years, but you still get angry. 
possibly, but every single person in this room is prejudiced. <coughs> you naturally see the things that you don't struggle with. That's why I'm careful with the word sin anymore. I, 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 you hear, rarely hear me use it uh, up front anyway because the biblical concept of sin is not what we use it today. Today's sin is whatever you're doing is worse than whatever I'm doing. So my own personal area of sin, I've been uncomfortable with it. It's normal. It's normalized. And therefore, I don't feel, I don't feel the same emotional <clears throat> about my own personal sin that I do about your sin. So I use the word brokenness to try to level the playing field because that's much more biblically, uh, it, it captures the sense of the Bible better. It's an area of controversy. I don't believe there are. Every sin is enough to kill you. Every sin, any sin, doesn't matter what it is, kept you out of heaven. That is a great question. That's the $64 question right there that we're wrestling with as elders. At what point do you step in? And even more importantly, how do you step in? Okay, how do you do it? So I'll just give you a quick summary of, of what I think of church discipline. This isn't a church discipline class, but the real question is, when do you exercise Matthew 18, 1 Timothy, I mean, uh, Galatians 6, and the rest of them, right, when you decide to confront, confront somebody? Well, uh, first of all, whenever you see somebody in trouble, you should want to help them. Always. Don't ever hesitate to step into the lives of people. That's one of the things I see in this church, but don't feel bad because it's also in every other church. What I see in this church is that we are very reluctant to step in until it's too late. We don't want to step in. Why don't we just go sit down with people and say, you know, it, lo it looks like your marriage is in trouble. Is everything okay? How about if we just did that? Not judging them, asking them, letting them decide. I, 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 I was out to dinner with you guys. I noticed you're kind of griping at each other a little. Is everything okay? Anything I can do to help? <laughs> you know? Oh, that's normal. Okay, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> Threw you right on the bus, didn't you? <laughs> How about if we just do that? The sooner you ask the question, the, the better able you are to help them. But we don't do that. We wait until it is identifiable sin. And then, by then, it's usually too late. They're already over the cliff and gone. I don't want to wait till, I don't want to wait till uh, one of the partners is committing adultery. Let's ask the question way back when they first started spouting off at each other. Uh, and we have that going on in our church um, where, where we're engaged with people way back early in the process now. And they're saying, yeah, my marriage isn't, as, isn't what I want it to be. Okay, what do we do to help? How, how much trouble are you in in your marriage? Is it time to bring in a professional counselor? Is the, are, the, are the issues so complex that we need better help? Or is it just early on and you, and you want to start talking about it? So it's a question of when do you do it and how do you do it? But then what happens is, what about church discipline? That always comes up, right? And we mix and mingle all these verses together. If you do careful Bible study and you put all the verses out about confrontation, here's what I see. This is my position, which I shared with the elders. 
that there's only two times you exercise church discipline, and they're very related. One is when somebody's boasting about their sin. The other one's when they're dividing the church over their sin. Okay? So if they're not doing that, I'm very content to leave them alone. Now, I may have a personal conversation with them, and they may not be ready to hear it. Okay. I'm not giving up on them. Not at all. Yeah, I think the problem is our comfort zone. Okay, that's an, uh, that's an American concept. The Israelites in the wilderness <coughs> got a tent here, a tent here, a tent here, a tent here, and a tent here. I have a feeling that when I, uh, when I yelled at my wife in my tent, all the other tents knew about it. <laughs> can't hide it. So the idea of privacy is a strong American uh, right, but it's not a biblical right. You don't have the right to privacy, and I will not let you exercise that right. I just won't. I have a far greater responsibility as a leader for your soul. Hebrews 13. I don't care about your rights. I don't. You don't have the right to free speech. You don't have the right to privacy. Those are American rights. Get rid of them. You now belong to, uh, the, you're now a citizen of heaven. Paul argues that you're not an American. So get past those rights and begin to, to throw them out the window. Ditch them. Don't live according to that. Live according to what it means to be Christ-like. And so we've created this, this thing in the United States where we have, we have my privacy. You better not interfere with it. Wrong. <laughs> I am going to interfere with it. If, if I see redemption is necessary, I personally don't mind stepping in. I don't lack for courage when it comes to those things. Now, I am very gentle and careful and affectionate on how I do it, but I will step in and ask. Some of you in this room are smiling because you've had me do it. <laughs> you know? Because we should be asking these questions. Our community here, this should be the safest place where we can ask each other the hard questions. We should be able to do it. No one else is going to do it. Remember, what you think is normal is not normal. So, would you know if you're abusing your children? Would you even know? Would you know if the way you're treating your spouse is appropriate? How would you even know? We don't talk about it. That needs to change. We need to have a safe enough place where these things can come up and we can ask questions. I'm still waiting for the day when a guy comes up to me and says, I don't know if I'm, she's not here. I don't know if I'm having, if my sex with my wife is frequent enough or not. Is it normal? We're never going to talk about that, are we? That's taboo in this culture. So it, it, the whole culture needs to slowly evolve where we, have, where we know each other well enough that we can ask questions and it's okay. You know, it's just fine. Tim Glasgow, I, 
I, whoever is the chairman of the elders, I told Frank this and I told Tim Glasgow this as the chairman now, I want them to be uh, a strong enough to ask me hard questions, but gentle enough not to frighten me. Okay? So I get together with Tim Glasgow, like every two to three weeks get together, and I never know what he's going to talk about, what, I mean, what he's going to ask me. Sometimes he j- he'll ask me, how's your relationship with Nancy? How is it? Is it, is it good? Yeah, it's good. You doing any pornography tonight, like Dad? Nope. Not at all. He asked me those questions. And you are blessed because he does that. So I want a chairman because Constitution says the chairman is responsible to mentor me. I want a chairman that's got the courage, got the chutzpah, to step in and ask me those hard questions. But is also a friend enough that I feel safe answering them. Every one of us needs it. Darkness, privacy, and seclusion are your enemy. I guarantee you. The most heinous sins are committed in private. They absolutely are. <coughs> and here's my take on why they're in tension with one another. We're not created to do this. The one thing that God tried to protect us from in the garden, way back here, was the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? We're not created for that. To really exercise that level of knowledge requires omniscience. I don't know your motives, and I don't know your circumstances. So whenever I move into someone's life, um, I am exercising a divine prerogative. Whenever I make an evaluation of that nature between good and evil, I am exercising a divine prerogative. Just remember that. I tell every counseling student that I've ever taught, just remember when you are listening to somebody and you begin to form an opinion, you are exercising a privilege of God. Don't ever forget that. We were not created for that. By the way, that's why parents are so exhausted at the end of vacation. He said, she said. I'm not Solomon. I can't cut the baby in half, right? I'm not God either. I can't figure it out. And so I'm always operating with very limited, finite, restricted information and trying to make the right decision. You bet. You bet. So when you look at Scripture, one more thing and I'll come to you too. When, when you look at Scripture, God is still in the business of protecting us from that one massive failure in the garden. So what is it? What does they say? Paul says, if you, uh, when you confront someone, be careful, you're going to fall into the same trap. Jesus said, don't do it. But if you do do it, the very next verse, be willing to submit yourself to the same standard. Don't use a double standard. Okay, James says, if you lack wisdom, ask God, he'll give it to you. All the authors from Genesis to Revelation say, ascertain. Deb, if I talk to you about John, that's gossip. That's not gossip. Gossip is when I'm talking to you at the expense of John. In Scripture, you always go and ask. So I've gone, Mark and I have regular conversations. I'll say, Mark, I, I, think, I think Deb's kind of mean. What, am I off base? What do you think about that? And Mark says, yeah, you're off base. Oh, okay. I'm off base. I'm not perfect. Okay? So Mark says, yeah, you know, I've kind of noticed that too. She kind of bit my head off a couple times in the last week. 
And I say, oh, all right. Oh. Then I go to Lauren. I say, Lauren, what do you think? Do you agree? And you, and you say, I think you guys are just guys and you're overreacting. Sweet. <laughs> We're overreacting. Okay. Help us understand what's going on. Maybe you have a good reason for it. I don't know. Okay. Don't want to get too gender specific here. <laughs> but, but you may say, no, I've noticed lately she's been a little, a little testy. All right. Now I have three people that feel the way I do. And so I go to her and I say, I love you. And you know, I just have experienced you lately the last week as being kind of testy. Is everything okay? And just find out. Let her make the call. Let her decide. That's what is behind those passages on go to your brother and sister with affection and gentleness and be and care. Go ask. I asked a couple uh, a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, if uh, their marriage was okay. And I had two or three people confirm my intuition that says something's not quite right. I don't know what it is. I'm not in their bedroom, for crying out loud. So I, when I took them out to lunch, and I just said, is everything okay? Uh, the way I've experienced you in community makes me think that there's some tension there, but I don't know. I thought I'd ask. It's funny because the husband sat there and stared at me for 15 seconds with his mouth hanging open. He said, I didn't think anybody noticed, much less cared. And I said, yeah, I care. I care very much. And he said, no, everything's not okay. And we don't know what to do about it. Well, praise God. I got some thoughts on that. <laughs> so does that make sense? Don't define gossip that way. That's bad. We were meant, problems were meant to be dealt with in relationship, in community. Now, discretion means that we don't go telling everybody about it that we're very discreet on how we, what we do with the information, but we are still gentle. And we confirm the last thing we want to do is hurt people. Right? Well, no, you have to do that. You have to do it just like you had to do, have to do it with your children. Okay? Sadly, we're in a place in that vortex between here and here where we don't have a choice. So the guidelines in Scripture give us a lot of insight on how to do it well. But even on the very best day, we're still broken people trying to fumble our way through it. So the word judge just really has to do with the idea of, of um, discriminating. Okay? Because we, we need each other. The truth is we do. What is normal to me may not be ethically the right thing, but it feels right to me. Some of you have heard my story. Okay? Six years old, I was sexually molested by people that were in our home. My parents invited into our home. And then um, my first exposure to, to uh, sexual relationships was from guys, not from girls. And so by the time I got married, guess what seemed normal to me? Was really messed up. But I couldn't tell that. It took other people from the outside saying, you know, you don't, you don't quite have it in the right place. And they took me through that to help me sort it out. That's what counselors do all day long, paid counselors. They help you sort out stuff. We need each other. We really do. 
that's one of the downfalls of our own culture is the, this whole individualism is so destructive to Christian theology. So we need each other. We need somebody that we could be honest with and say, I, here's how I'm living process. Yeah, it's kind of coming and going. Healthy marriage provides some corrective in that process. Marriage is probably more about your holiness than your happiness. Because that's, you know, you can't fool a spouse. Not very well anyway. We're going to talk about that in uh, this summer. I'm going to do a theology of marriage class. Zach, do you have a comment? Yeah. I don't know if I'd use the word neat community uh, <laughs> with Jesus and the disciples hanging out together for that minute, for three years because uh, Jesus didn't at all mind confronting them, did he? Yeah. Oh, you a little faith. <laughs> Just one example. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, James says that God is unchanging in his character. He knows all. So I don't, that, that is a, there's a small group of Christian scholarship that argues that way. I don't hold that. Um, that God is developing. We are developing. God is infinite. So there's several terms that describe who God is. Well, what's in it for you when you work with your children and all of a sudden they become they begin to uh, live mature, responsible lives. What do you get out of it? Joy. Sure, the emotional piece God would share, I don't think he would share the development piece. He's already perfect. You bet. That's why I argued last week, I think it was last week, 
I think it was in the class. I can't. I have these conversations so many times I can't remember. That uh, it's also part of getting old. That um, um, the the greatest way to bring glory to the Lord is to do what He asks us to do. What we're created for. That's the greatest way to worship God and to bring glory to Him. Just like your children do with you. If your children live, you know, you you shouldn't be embarrassed or ashamed of your children, no matter what, how, no matter how much of an idiot they are. <laughs> Um, because you were an idiot, but when they figure it out and life fits, comes together and their faith comes together and they begin to live mature lives, then all of a sudden you feel this sense of, of joy that comes from that. I think the Lord does experience that. First of all, why would he need to change with any of us? He's got billions of examples of before us. Okay? So if, you're gonna, if we're going to argue change, then it ought to be with Adam and Eve because then he had experience. They didn't even know what to do with every other character. But he's got billions and billions of people ahead of us. That's the great thing about where we are in the line. When I'm stuck in sin or struggling with sin or temptation, I go to the Lord and I just say, Lord, you're the only one I can actually talk to about this and you're the one who has the most experience. You're the one I trust. So help me with this. Because he knows how to do it. Okay, do you get the basic model that that as you move through Scripture, now here's one distinction from Christianity and the other religions. When you look at the great books in Christianity, you're moving through time periods. You don't have to accept the cultural values of any time period in the Bible because the whole premise is God is moving beyond that and redeeming those cultural values. So we're going to take a look tonight actually at a passage that does deal with... uh, Military, the way we treat women in a military conquest, when we win them, we win them as loot, if you will. Okay? But that's not true with where we live today. So we look at the principles of how God interacted with them during that period of time, and then we move on to the next one, and those are no longer true. So the Bible is the record of God moving through time and redeeming broken cultural values. We don't have to accept the except the cultural values of any period of the Bible. But in every other religion, if you want to become Muslim, you have to adopt the uh, cultural values of the 7th century. In Islamic theology, women will always be subjugated to men. They always will. By the way, if you want to adopt Hindu teaching, you have to move back and predate the Bible because it's older than Christianity. All right, That's why they don't have any teaching on sexual ethics, child sex trafficking, all those things. They don't have any teaching on that. Because it wasn't any back there, and it's an unchanging religion. So the Christianity is the only religion that is covers, the Bible covers 1,500 written years, but more than that in its actual coverage, and it shows God moving and redeeming brokenness. Does that make sense? When I say it that way? So if you're dealing with a passage that's discussing um, genocide, you don't have to buy into the values of the that period of time when genocide was the norm. It's not the way you do. You don't have to because God moves beyond that. Okay, so let's take a passage and let's play with it a little bit. Turn with me to Genesis 22. Well-known passage. Acquaint yourselves with it. You'll recognize it right away. 
What's the passage about? Huh? God's command for Abraham to kill his son. Okay? How do you make sense of that in Christian theology? It's not what I asked. I said, how do you make sense of it in Christian theology? Does that represent the redemptive God that we know, that he us, He tells us to kill a child? Okay, so what are the issues that come out of this? We have to, we have to figure out what to do with this passage so it makes sense to us today. Okay, faith beyond family members. Okay. Foreshadowing of the crucifixion. Who told you that? Okay, but we're not we're not to the crucifixion yet. And Abraham didn't know that. Abraham didn't know that. Exactly. Right, so let's start with what are the basic issues before we get to, you know, as Christians today, man, we love to jump to the, as much as we can, final answer, right? And we lose something on a journey. So hang on to it, don't lose it, you're right. But what are the issues within the, within the context? What troubles you about it? Huh? Okay, Ob- obedience, so it has the issue of obedience. Okay, so there's a promise in there. Okay, how does it violate our sense of ethics today? That's what you're talking about. Ah, ah. There's several times I would like to. (laughs) In fact, I think your dad told me he would have liked to. No, just kidding. Okay, so yours arguing is a sense of trust. Okay. What was Isaac thinking? Sure he was. Do you think Abraham thought... Right? Okay. So he's, he recognizes who he is. What do you think Abraham was thinking? Okay. Sarah, Sarah might not have had any say in it. So how many of you think Abraham was excited to do this? I'm all by myself? I'm by myself. 
apparently. Okay, I'm by myself, so I'll put myself over in this one group over here. I think that he didn't mind it at all. Okay, how many of you think he was reluctant to do it? How many of you think, what other positions are there? Several I can think of, but does anybody hold a different position? Bivla? Now, he didn't hesitate, did he? Yeah. It's interesting when you look at uh, when you look at Scripture, you have uh, the view that we're given of Scripture is sometimes you're flying at thirty thousand feet. That's what happens up to Genesis twenty-two, and all of a sudden, the story slows way down, and we go get right down in the weeds. Every little detail is presented. Okay, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac. So early the next morning, Abraham got up. Not the next morning, early. Loaded his donkey, took with him two of his servants, his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he, he, and he set out and he did this thing. Well, the chapter before, you're flying at 30,000 feet. And all of a sudden, now you're, now you're way down in this detail. That's there for a reason. Moses is giving us a blow by blow, minute by minute, if you will, encounter of what's happening to help us get a sense of what Abraham's doing. Abraham did not hesitate. Not at all. But isn't God opposed to childhood sacrifice? He is, right? What? I don't know what he knew. Yeah, he waited so long. He's like, I don't want to have another one. Hundred years old. Sure, we are. You can't throw it away. Double horizons. Two horizons. That's there. We're here. I gave you a handout. One of the handouts is on this passage. Okay. I marked it off. It's just one paragraph. Not that one. The other one. If it's got a marking on it, where I identify one paragraph, just read the paragraph. And by the way, the author of this, I think, committed uh, anachronism. He took values and moved them back. And I know John Walton, he's a good man. <coughs> Once you've read it, talk at your tables and, and talk about what comes out when you think about the culture of the day.
Yep. We're looking ahead. And then we're going to put it in a redemptive context. Okay? Kind of where does it fit? Right. Because they're not allowed to. But they long to one day when they're brought back to Jerusalem. Okay, so talk among your tables and just see if anything surfaces from this one paragraph. I'm using it as an illustration for both cultural background and then we're going to play with it in in a redemptive model or a missional model, what God is doing. <laughs> Were you a troubled child growing up? <laughs> it was normal to you. That's where I disagree with him, with what you just said. That's where I disagree with him, because that came 500 years later. He didn't know anything about those.
Perfect. Okay. I want to see what the second one was I gave you. I forgot already. I didn't say loved it. I think he was willing and eager to do it. Remember that statement right there. Okay? That's an important statement. All right. Anything float to the surface? What's that? Now you got it settled? Deb's not testy anymore? <laughs> he probably was 16 to 18. Yes. <laughs> Okay, what comes up in just that one paragraph? It's just one paragraph. Did you learn anything? Okay, now, whoa, whoa. Even though, don't just even though and pass over that. What makes you think it was accepted in the culture? All right. Okay. How do you know that? How do you know he only worshiped one? Okay, so we have assumptions floating through here, don't we? Okay, all right, good, good. Just calling attention to that. Is there, is there anything that you're aware of where Moses, I mean, where God says to Abraham, I am the only God and there is no other? That didn't come until later in the Old Testament. In fact, even God's, a lot of his language is assuming that there's an assembly of gods. Right? The Israelites certainly believe that coming out of Egypt. So we don't know, we don't have enough information, but what, what I don't think we have is enough information to say that God had convinced him there weren't other gods. Convinced that he's different, he's more powerful, he's, if, if, if there is an assembly, he is the God of gods. Okay? Lord of lords. Okay? 
Okay. The one mistake where I think, uh, assuming John Walton wrote this little section here, I, I don't know, but the one mistake I think he made is to bring in the prophets and the um, prophets and the the law law code because that didn't come till five six hundred years later. Yeah. Right. So, so just with that little bit there, it was accepted. Yeah, but, but it's very unclear when you have it in the Genesis account. Hmm? Right. But we're, we're going back in time and looking at Abraham. Okay, in Abraham's culture, he would have been very familiar with childhood sacrifice. That was a that was a, something that was practiced. Okay. Now, what did you say? Can you remember your comment? Well, I mentioned the internal conflict as a parent, and the assumption behind that is that that's called anachronism, where you're looking at our values that are developed today and our love for our children and bringing you back in there. you can <laughs> that's Now, we can bring it into this story because it tells us your son whom you love, okay? But that's not a given in human nature that parents are going to love their children. If you, if you spend any time in the Asian countries under Buddhism or Hinduism, you'll find a very dispassionate relationship. I'm convinced that's why you can, they can sell their children into the sex trade. Uh, how can a mother sell a four-year-old? And yet it's common throughout India and Nepal and the other countries in that area. How is that? Because there's, not, there's nothing in the teachings that build that type of affection in. And we have it. I think so. so that's God said. Right. So what is the actual test? But what is it? What is the actual test? Sacrifice Isaac, right? Is that really the test? So is the actual test who you love more? 
Well, there's, I think it was a no-brainer for Abraham. He didn't hesitate. Okay? So I don't even think he was thinking that way. Childhood sacrifice is something that he was raised with. Okay? He, saw, he probably saw it lots of times. People did it. That's just the way it was done. God had not yet said, don't sacrifice children. That wasn't part of his plan at this stage. Now we're talking missional. Okay? So we're way back here. God had not yet said, don't sacrifice children. So you can kind of still see it here. So Abraham's here, but he doesn't bring in the law till later on about not sacrificing children. So we can assume, I think, that Abraham would, have not ha- would not have had ethical issues with childhood sacrifice. So therefore, killing his son wasn't a test. close, but that could have okay, refine it more because he had Ishmael okay, so so what's the actual test of Abraham's faith? He apparently didn't have any ethical compunction against. <coughs> Not you. Be quiet. You've heard it too many times. <laughs> What's the actual test? But but what was he? What was his faith? What part of his faith was being tested? It wasn't the killing of his son. He had no ethical compunction against that. Close. What did you say? Sure, but the, but still the assumption is, that we're we're taking our values today and bringing them back into it, the way we're taught to be affectionate and care for our children. Okay, we have plenty of stories in the ancient world where you know, I mean, Solomon had a thousand wives. There's no way he had that kind of love for all those children. He didn't know them. But Abraham knew Isaac. Okay. But he doesn't seem to show any compunction about any ethical compunction against killing him. So that's not the test. The test is not in the sacrifice. Yep. The test is, would God really bless him through Isaac? So it wasn't in the killing, which is what we think from 21st century ethics. How could in the world could you kill your child? But he was raised with that. That's what you did. Probably saw it all around him. So the real test was, was God true to his promise that it's through Isaac that he would bless the entire world? 
And so there's nothing in there. There's nothing that leads us to, to a conclusion that he was hesitant and he... No, in fact, the details are pretty clear. You, we, all the details are spelled. He got up early the next morning. That shows eagerness. He got right to it. He got right to it. I can't wait to see how you're going to do this. Now turn to Hebrews 11. I didn't, let, I didn't take you there because not until we wrestled a little bit. Hebrews 11. So the details of the story convince me that Abraham got right to it. I can't wait to see what God is going to do here. Verse 17. By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. So here he even says he offered him up. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the death, from death. See, the test for Abraham was exactly that, Dick. I can't wait to see what God is going to do. He blessed me when I'm past childbearing with the one child who's going to bless the whole world. Then he tells me to kill him. Okay. I can't wait to see what God's going to do here. I kind of wonder if it wasn't like this, if he says to his friends and relatives, you guys all sacrifice your children. Nothing happened, huh? Watch what happens when I sacrifice mine. The one true God is going to bring him back to life. The real test was that he believed God would raise him back from the dead and fulfill his promise. That's where the test was. Huh? Right. No other God could do that and had ever done it in history. Okay, so we have on this line here, we have Abraham operating back here in a time when the ethics permitted execution of children or offering of children to sacrifice, a sacrifice to gods. Okay, that's really what it is. It's not execution of children, it's offering as a sacrifice. So the ethics of Abraham's world permitted the offering of your child to the gods. And so it probably wasn't a surprise to Abraham when God said, sacrifice your son. The gods expected that. That's what you get out of that. Okay, now we're way back here trying to make sense of that. How could he do that? Well, it wasn't until later on that the ethic around children began to develop. That was like five, six hundred years later. Okay, now within the mission of God, we're not going to make any more, much more detail out of this, but within the mission of God, what you begin to see is you begin to see this pattern that ultimately leads to, sets us up for Christ here because God sacrifices his son. That is a stumbling block to many people. Why would God kill his own son? Because we don't, we would never do that. We're not expected to do that. Okay? That is a, that's a stumbling block to the world. And I, I believe that the cross would not have the same impact if it occurred today. Because today, okay, when the cross comes, <coughs> world ethics had still not developed around the value of children. So God offering his son was an acceptable way of responding in the first century cultural world, but it wouldn't have been today. Because we've moved beyond that. Ethics have developed. 
So I'm not sure the cross, if it happened today, would have the same impact. Because everybody, every nation in the world would be crying out. You can't do that. But back then you could do it. So what you have is you have Abraham, where there's no sense of ethics. Then you have Israel, which is developing a sense of ethics. You can't offer your children to sacrifice. You can kill them under the law, but you can't sacrifice them to a god or goddesses, okay? And by the way, why can't you sacrifice them? Because it's blasphemy, because there are no other gods, not because it's an ethical problem under the law. You just don't do it because there aren't any other gods. That's, that's idolatry and blasphemy. So by the time Christ comes, the world still hasn't developed that sense that childhood sacrifice is, is crazy. So this fits in that period of time, or as Paul says, when the fullness of time had come, then we could offer, he offered his son. But today, that would never fly. Um, there's probably a few tribal cultures. There's not many. Worldwide, it's generally accepted that you just don't do that. Now. You can sell them into slavery, but you don't. <laughs> you could do that. Okay, say that again. Well, the uh, author of Hebrews argues that. We do. We do. All right. Whereas for Abraham, I'm not sure the... uh, Right. So people today that really struggle with a father killing a son in the crucifixion, that they're, they're again, they're anachronistic. They're taking our values and reading it back. How could God do that? But remember, God was speaking at a point in time to the, through the resurrection to change the world, and the world had not yet come to that conclusion. That came later on. So does it bother you? Okay. Don't think of it as being taught inappropriately. Think of it more along the lines of what's happened for 2,000 years. We continue to develop in our understanding. So I'm thankful for the world we live in today. And honestly, I'm really grateful for the young people because um, my time is, is I'm in the last, the last third of my career, 
maybe the last 20% of it, I'm thankful for what they're going to have because they're going to take it even further. Um, some of both, some of both. In this particular one, if you go back 50 years, you don't find the text talking about the cultural background because we didn't get it. We didn't understand it. So there's some of both in that. The key, what I'm, what I'm hoping you get is that the natural tendency is to do what you just did, um, is to be troubled by that as opposed to seeing that the Spirit of God is continuing to lead the church to develop better and better theology and therefore better ethics. Yes. With the point of the cross? Say the last thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, I definitely think it's a crescendo. I have no problem with that. But the cross didn't answer every ethical problem. Nothing in the New Testament answered every ethical problem. What the cross did was brought about redemption. We are. It brought about spiritual redemption, not cultural redemption. And there's a difference. Okay, so all of us are saved based on the work of Christ. And so that's what permits us, what happened on the cross is what permits us all to still experience sin, but God doesn't see us that way. God sees us as, as Paul argues in the Corinthian epistles, he says, don't you know that uh, feminine, homosexuals, greedy, liars, blah, blah, they won't inherit the kingdom of God. There. You've been washed, you've been cleansed, you've been, you know, you've been justified. What, that, what he's arguing there, I think, is that God no longer sees you in light of your sin. Uh, Mark, Mark said it to me this way. I really like it. Um, he says, I refuse to define my son in terms of, say, sexual orientation. And that's the way I think of it. So let's say that you struggle with anger. I refuse to define you in terms of your anger. I'm going to define you in terms of Christ. Okay? So let's say that you struggle with pornography. I don't know. I refuse to define you in terms of that. I'm going to define you in term, instead in terms of Christ, the redemption of Christ. So when we start thinking that way, then we quit defining people in terms of their behavior, and then behavior becomes more of an analytical tool, an assessment tool, if you will, for how far along are we toward maturity. So if we lead somebody to the Lord today and they commit adultery tonight, we're all going to say, well, yeah, he's just a, he's only been a believer for six hours. But if I do that, it's a whole different ballgame. Okay? So the same behaviors has two very different responses within our community, as it should. So the behaviors, talk they, they really give us an assessment tool for saying, where are people on that road to maturity and redemption? Somebody that, somebody that is is far away from, remember I drew this last week? You know, you got the cross and you got a person standing here moving that direction, person way out here moving this direction, which one's healthier? This person, right? 
but they're but they could be they could be miles away and haven't had a chance to experience any level of redemption at all. It doesn't mean that so we shouldn't define them in terms of the behavior. We now define them in terms of Christianity, a redeemed person. That's how we define them. So let's don't let our behaviors define us. Let's let our profession of faith define us. And then our behaviors becomes a way of assessing how do we help this person? We do want to help an alcoholic get past alcoholism, don't we? We do want to help somebody that is struggling with, with uh, pornography to get past pornography. So it's just, it's just a tool is all it is. Uh, I'm, I'm defining redemption in, in stages or categories. Spiritual redemption is done. That's how we should define people. But we still have the whole issue of our sinful, broken self and the way we live within relationship and culture. That doesn't get changed. That's a very slow process. So when most Christians, when you say redemption, they think of the cross, and that's good. But that's just one part of redemption. Redemption is a whole lot bigger than that. So spiritually, you have been redeemed, but culturally, physically, you haven't been yet. Oh, spiritual redemption. And we demand, of, we demand of our personal cultural redemption what we demand of spiritual redemption, that you change like that. That's very typical to, to we, we look for abrupt change even though we don't experience it ourselves. I haven't experienced anything that rapid. It's a very slow process. No, that's true. Right. And what does that accountability look like? What does that accountability look like? Look at, look, look at Matthew 18. Most famous passage that get, gets thrown in my face all the time. Okay, Matthew 18. So let's go there. This is the classic passage on somebody in sin. Verse 15. 15 through 17. Okay, somebody's in sin. You go to them. Right? And they don't listen to you. Then what do you do? Take a friend. And they don't listen to the friend in you. Then what do you do? Take it to the church. Then what do you do? Okay, if you've been through this discussion with me, don't, don't give feedback yet. What do you do? What, is the, what does the church typically say in our, the way we've been taught? What's the final step? Huh? So we just don't worry about it anymore. Okay, if you're going to sin, just stay in our midst, but go ahead and sin. Disfellowship, that's, that's, that's the way I was raised, that disfellowship. But what is the final step? What does it say? Read it. 
No, don't interpret it. Read it. All right. How did Jesus treat pagans, sinners? How did he treat Zacchaeus, tax collector? <laughs> Don't complicate it. <laughs> what did he do? Zacchaeus, come down from that tree. I'm going to have a meal in your house today. Right? Not only did he not treat him inappropriately, he became unclean in the process. Yeah, no, I think the emphasis is really on, I think Jesus is drawing a point because right after that, then, because uh, remember, he's not talking to the culture, he's talking to the disciples. And he's already been teaching them. So he's teaching the disciples, okay, you've seen me do this. So then Peter, you can tell Peter's a little confused. And he says, okay, well then, Peter gets it to some degree. Well then, how often should I forgive my brother or sister? Seven times? I mean, that is seven beyond what's expected. So Peter gets it. And what does Jesus say? Yeah, there's no end. You don't ever stop. So he's not talking to the culture. He's talking to the, the 12 <clears throat> because they've already seen him at work now. They know how he's working. So he said, treat him like you would a tax collector. And so Peter says, and he's making them wrestle with it. So Peter says, okay, I get it. We're supposed to go above and beyond we don't treat them like the Pharisees do. So I should forgive them seven times, right? I mean, that's a huge, generous statement. And Jesus says, you're getting close. Seventy times seven. It never stops. You don't ever stop forgiving them. Do you know that I have, I have no notes in my Bible? None. I don't even write notes in it. I tear it up and I swap with Nancy and take her Bible and give her my old one. <laughs> huh? In fact, this one in the front says Nancy Howard. <laughs> it's, not my, it's not my Bible. <laughs> Is it stealing? Well... Yeah, but I'm forgiven, so it's okay. <laughs> That's why I wanted Mark to go back to seminary when I first got here. Mark needs to have the same level of education. There need to be two of us, at least. Many as we can, thinking the right way. I know. But you got to remember. But don't forget. You're hearing two commentaries. You're hearing that person's commentary and you're hearing my commentary.
Okay, now here's the key word there. You're close, it's in Acts. Um, you're pretty close, it's in Acts. You're pretty close, it's in Acts. Or synapse, either one. <laughs> now, let me let me in, let me appropriately interpret. <laughs> let me appropriately interpret your statement. You used the plural correctly, but what everybody heard was personal. This is not your interpretation. That's the Holy Spirit is the catalyst, but it's not your individual interpretation. It's the community's interpretation. It's one of the big weaknesses in the Western church. Huge weakness. So even the way you quoted the verse was correct. They, our, we. If you read your Bible, every time you read a verb or a pronoun and you made it a plural, y'all instead of you, 98% of the time you would be dead on. It's our interpretation. It's not my interpretation. That's why I've told the elders, you guys are so important. I bring interpretation to you. I watch their eyes right away. And if, and if they go, we like this. Sweet. This is a community interpretation. All I am is a gift. That's all I am. You're responsible for your own interpretation. I'm not responsible for yours. I'm responsible for mine. Now, I'm held accountable for what I teach you, so I'm very careful in how I study and, and relate it to you. I'm not very flippant. I'm, I've put a lot of time and energy into it. But one of the most important things for me, remember that framework of interpretation I brought up last week? Framework of interpretation, the very last one was, in, was informed, educated intuition. I look at you. So when I hear you say, I like this, this makes sense to me, then that tells me we're moving in a good direction. Okay? If the community feels that way. You bet. You bet. Right. That's right. But what's happening in 1 Corinthians 5? That's why I said a careful reading. If you take all these passages and plot them out, all the passages that say kick them out have one of two things in common. They're either boasting about their sin is what's happening there, or they're causing division, which is actually also happening there. Okay? Sure he does. No, no, it says he's boasting about it. If you read it carefully. And they're boasting about it as a church. They're, they're standing up and saying, woohoo, look at this. So, but in the cases where you kick them out, there are very clear references to kicking them out. In every case, division is occurring. And unity is more important. So if, if, if a person's sin is causing division in the church, then it's appropriate for the elders to step in. Right. What I'm trying to do is get us away from a formula, a formulaic approach. Okay. Somebody even said to Mark and me, we need to create a policy around like divorce. 
Okay, why? Because it's sin. So, okay, so we need a policy on how to deal with sin. All right, so let's start with your sin. Okay, what's your sin? Let's start with yours. We'll create a policy around it. Every one of you in here has a sin that you're committing, that you have committed today. Every single one of you. Should we kick you out? Sure you did. You chose to get angry. You chose to doubt. You chose to get depressed. You chose to... It's okay, I'm letting you I'm letting you dig the hole deeper. <laughs> Where'd you come with a division between behavioral and impulsive sin? Right, but you. St- but you know anger's wrong. In fact, you probably know grumbling's wrong. Philippians two, <laughs> complaining. Philippians two, being anxious. Philippians four. See, we have in our culture. Think about the language that we use to feel better about ourselves. If you fall into sin, nobody falls into sin. You consciously choose to get to sin. There's nothing impulsive about it. You consciously chose to get angry. You could have not done that. That's your choice. You have a choice. And that's what counselors help you come to grips with. It's your choice. You can get angry or not. You choose to get angry. So... So I don't see the distinction in the Bible between impulse and behavior. It's all sin from God's perspective. That's why those, those lists, anger is one of them in the lust of the flesh, by the way. Just like all the sexual and moral sins, they're in the same list. Greed is in the same list as causing strife, okay, causing division as same sex in 2 Corinthians. So when you look at the list, they're, they're, they're all put right there. You gotta look at it from God's perspective, not how you feel about it. Okay, now we're talking about boasting. Yep. When you start getting into the extra things, we're going to end with this because time's up, okay? It gets really messy when you get beyond the two simple categories of boasting or division because then it becomes a matter of levels of maturity. So what you would expect from me, for instance, is different than what you'd expect from a believer who's only been a believer for one day. You expect two different things, rightfully so. So now it gets very messy and gray. And so that's where we... As, it, as we move into the areas of gray, we, we should slow way down 
And we should be affectionate. We should be very careful and humble to follow all those examples. Is there a time when we, when we actually ask somebody to leave a fellowship? Of course there is. And is there a time beyond those two categories? Of course there is. If, I'm, if you catch me sleeping, I, I asked the, I asked the uh, Iron Hour a year ago, I said, um, uh, uh, I said, I told him, I said, I've committed adultery since I've come to Summit County. And the room got quiet. And then somebody said, you're joking, right? I said, no, I'm not joking at all. I've committed adultery since I've come here. And finally somebody says, because you lusted after a woman. Exactly. You know, Jesus rose, raised the standard so high it's impossible to meet. Therefore, the only option is the cross. So the answer is yes. So would you discipline me for that because I lusted after a woman? Well, you're going to discipline every pastor that comes along. Okay, I guarantee it. So let's go back to here at the very beginning. I lust after a woman. Would you discipline me? Me personally at my level, no. Okay? So then I asked him, okay, I looked at pornography once. Would you discipline me for that? Most everybody said no. There might have been one guy like Steve Hill that said yes. Okay? So then I said, okay, well, then I've developed a habit of looking at pornography. Would you kick me out of the church for that? Or would you try to restore that and correct it? Okay, then I sleep with a woman once. Would you kick me out for that? I have a pattern of sleeping with women. Would you kick me out for that? I have a pattern of sleeping with men. Where on that spectrum would you exercise church discipline? See how messy it gets real fast? Almost everybody would agree down here the answer is no, and up here the answer is yes. But wh- where you fit in the middle is, is a function of community and culture. And it gets messy. There's no question about it. It's not black and white. And Mark and I, to our death, will fight against policies that try to resolve it because the scripture doesn't resolve it. It allows us in community to take care of these problems and make the assessment, what's the right way to go? I can sin so greatly that I fracture this community and hurt it. It is appropriate to do two things, restore me and ask me to leave. That is appropriate. Yeah, unity is overarching without anything else. Most important. Yeah. (laughs) 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 I I've been telling Christians for twenty years, don't read the notes in your Bible. Just don't even you know. Don't read the interpretive notes. Read the historical and, and the cultural notes, but not the hermeneutical interpretive ones. Yeah. Okay, bring your handouts next week. I mean, not next week, because I'm having surgery next week. Bring your handouts in two weeks back, because the next one is dealing with the treatment of women in warfare as loot or booty. What are we going to do with it? Okay?